If you have a, if you have your Bibles out, we're going to be looking at Philippians three today. Philippians three. If you want to turn there on your phone app or whatever, it'll also be on the screen. So this is Philippians three verses one through fourteen and verse twenty. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have Already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Skipping down to verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. I also want to wish all of you a very happy Mother's Day. A special shout-out to our moms who are celebrating Mother's Day for the first time. I know there are several of you. We're so excited with you. And as David said, for those for whom this day is hard, um, we're with you in it. We see you. The Lord sees you. And we're really grateful that you're here um, in community with us this morning. I will be real. Uh, It is one thing to uh, stand beside David for a decade and watch him uh, uh, prepare messages, and quite another thing to be asked to um, stand in it and wrestle um, with God around what do you want the church to hear from the text this week. So I'm up here with a little bit of fear and trembling, um, but also uh, grateful and um, hopeful that the Holy Spirit has something for all of us today. So let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Some of you know I am uh, prone to seasickness, particularly on sailboats, which is really interesting because I married into a family that loves the ocean and loves boats. And uh, David grew up um, one of six kids in a pastor's family, and uh, they didn't have too much, but they all loved boats, and they all loved the ocean, so they put everything that they could into this little tiny sailboat that they would take out to Catalina and camp on for weeks at a time uh, every summer, and they all still wax poetic about this all the time. 
Uh, and uh, so when we started dating about 12 years ago, his parents still had a boat in Emeryville Harbor at the time, and they invited me out for a sail because this is what their family did on Saturdays. And so, of course, I show up in a sundress and sandals because I work in fashion, and I'm the daughter of Asian immigrants, and I don't know anything about sailing. And I have no idea that you're supposed to wear boat shoes and, like, pants. And so you can like pull ropes and tie knots, like no idea, right? Like no idea. So I show up and I'm totally useless and it's a really great start. And they motor us out into San Francisco Harbor and it's totally beautiful. We're all having a great time. They cut the motor and put up the sails and pretty soon I'm totally sick to my stomach. And you know that feeling like your head starts to hurt and then your stomach hurts and you just like want to close your eyes and will it to go away? I was actually reminded of this over uh, winter break. My sister-in-law found this amazing Groupon for us to go whale watching in San Diego. And about an hour in, I see my mom and she's just, love you mommy, uh, and she's got her eyes like closed and she's like willing it to go away. And I'm pretty sure you need a plastic, pretty soon you need a plastic bag, right? Um, so it's really miserable, and I think through a decade of a lot of misadventures like this, um, I have learned slowly that one of the only ways, short of knocking out on Dramamine, that I can uh, you know, function fairly well, not get quite as sick um, on non-motorized boats, is to keep my eyes looking out as far as possible. It's really counterintuitive, but you have to look out as far as you can, and it's actually really hard because there's a lot of stuff going on around you, um, but... The Lord has used this recently, actually, to show me that my spiritual journey actually looks a lot like this, too. If we can manage to go through this life keeping our eyes on eternity, we get a whole lot less seasick, a whole lot less distracted. Our joy isn't stolen quite as much. Uh, we're a lot less prone to being swayed this way or that um, by ambitions and earthly pursuits that seem like they matter a lot in the moment, but really won't in the long run. And if we're honest with ourselves, can matter to the point where failure in a job, in a class, uh, as a parent, um, can make us want to close our eyes and lose perspective. When important relationships get stuck, or someone disappoints us, which they will, because we're all imperfect. It's really tempting to get taken out of the game, uh, to get turned away from what really matters. So how do we not get taken out of the game in these moments? Um, how do we uh, not lose perspective? How do we keep our eyes on the horizon and to keep our eyes on eternity? Or to use the vision language we love here together here at Current, how do we activate one another to live for God's kingdom first? This is a practical question I want to look at together in this Philippians text today, specifically how the gospel reframes achievement, how the gospel reframes ambition, and how the gospel reframes arrival. If you're here and checking out the faith, not yet totally sure what you make of Jesus, I invite you to lean in also, questioning, do I feel like there may be some truth to this, that there's more to life than this, that there's more to come? So first, how the gospel reframes achievement. I love how this passage starts. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is not trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Any of you who are in leadership or marketing or maybe your parents, uh, you know that there's some truth to the saying that you have to repeat things seven times before they stick, right? 
I love that Paul's just calling that straight out here. I don't mind repeating myself, you guys, and I hope you don't mind hearing it again. It's because it's super important that you hear what I have to say. Better safe than sorry, he says. So he's got us paying attention, and what follows is actually a warning. A warning in putting too much stock in our credentials, our abilities, our external human traditions. He writes, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Nothing against dogs. We have a lot of dog lovers here at Current. It is a translation thing. So um, dog was a term of reproach in Greek during those times. Uh, Paul's not happy with these people, specifically false teachers who've been roaming around after him, trying to convince people and mislead them away from the freedom of the gospel. He's talking right now to a Gentile church, the Philippians. Uh, they are a strategic center, a uh, Roman colony, uh, the first non-Jewish converts to Christianity, which was really significant. Um, these false teachers, these dogs, they're trying to convince the Philippians that they need to be circumcised in order to be legit believers. And Paul, who happens to be circumcised himself, is saying, no, that's you being mutilators of the flesh. Because although this was previously the sign of God's covenant with his people, with Jesus, this has been replaced. Paul teaches of a circumcision of the heart. We who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Although circumcision isn't necessarily an active debate for us today in our church, that idea of mistakenly putting confidence in the flesh is actually quite easy for us to dig into and understand. After all, what is flesh? It's what we can see, right? And the heart of putting confidence in things that we can do and others can see, right? Putting confidence in our flesh. We're putting confidence in human credentials. Paul is really open here about his privilege and his credentials, about how much he's achieved by worldly standards in his life. Verses 4 and 5. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, so he was privileged from the very beginning, right? Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. So long story short, he's from the most reputable tribe that did the least amount of screwing up, although they did still screw up because they're human, right? Um, but it's in short, a really great reputable family to be from, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews in regards to the law, a Pharisee. So in our terms, the highest achievement job for the time. He had it made, right? So if we translated this to really extreme Silicon Valley terms, Paul might be born into a family where he has the opportunity to learn how to code at a young age. He starts a company in his parents' garage at the age of 16, goes on to an Ivy League university where he can easily graduate but chooses to drop out because a VC offers him funding that he can't turn down, and then goes public after five years, right? This is obviously not a one-for-one, one, right? But the point is this is someone who's really got it made from the world's perspective, right? Who's rolling in achievement. He's hashtag life goals, right? His LinkedIn profile. So um, a lot of people's perspectives, right? And what does Paul say about these amazing credentials? He says, in comparison to what I have in Christ, I might as well tear it up and throw it away. Another translation goes on in the passage this way. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant, dog dung. 
He goes on to say, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul's referring here to his background as one of those prestigious teachers of the law, those Pharisees who persecuted Christians, and now having become a true follower of Jesus is understanding that there are no grounds for confidence before God. I haven't earned any of this, he says. I haven't earned my righteousness, first and foremost, and I also haven't earned my position. I don't hang my hat on it. I don't put my identity in it. My life goal is to put my eggs in a far more robust basket to put my eyes on what matters for eternity. The gospel reframes achievements, helps us understand that put next to Christ, they will literally seem like rubbish. I think many of us might say that we desire this perspective, right? It would be nice for our credentials to feel dim next to Christ, but they don't always, do they? And with the next two points, the text actually explores this tension and helps us understand ourselves more in it. Does allowing the gospel to reframe achievements mean that we're not ambitious? Not at all. It's simply putting in perspective what we're aiming for. The gospel reframes ambition for us as well. The definition of ambition is very closely linked to achievement, a strong desire to do or to achieve something, typically requiring determination and hard work. I love that they're related. It makes a lot of sense, right? And note the wonder as well as the energy and weight of urgency that Paul uses in his language as he talks about this. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He uses press on twice and the imagery of straining because our spiritual journey and keeping our eyes on eternity takes determination and hard work. We are wired to aim for something. The question is what? And we want to be motivated by something that's worth it, that's going to last, right? I was trying really hard to think of an illustration for this idea of straining, and all that kept coming to mind was our daughter Maddie at 18 months with her ladybug backpack in the airport. I think we were on our way to Mexico. And you know, like the skip hop one? I think we have a picture of it. Like, you know, with the, with the little leash on it, right? And you're holding the leash, and she's just straining in every possible direction, like every direction, totally convinced that if she presses on far enough, she can get to freedom, right? Really, really convinced. Um, I want to strain with that kind of conviction on a daily basis toward heaven, but maybe with a slightly more effective manner and more movement. Um, it's funny, I shared this illustration with Caleb um, as I was preparing this week. I was looking for this picture, actually, the other night. Um, he's been praying for me this week. And he goes, oh, yeah, I remember that. He's like, I don't know why I shouldn't just take off the backpack. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, Skip Hop is really smart. They put a clip right here, so I'll give them props for that. But, yeah, it's true, right? Um, it, it is. It, it, it's true. Um, I think that, practically, what does it look like for us 
to strain toward heaven, but actually make progress and not just be straining with no movement. You know, does it mean that we all quit our secular jobs and just give up all earthly achievement? I really don't think that's what the text is saying. We were made to work. We were made to accomplish, create, analyze, build, manage, care for, whatever verb you like to put against um, your daily activities, work is absolutely indispensable in order to lead a meaningful life. And that's whether or not it's for a paycheck. What's important is to keep in proper perspective and to look at our work through what we like to call a gospel worldview, to recognize there's a transcendent story being written in everything we do, to be sensitive to God's leading and calling in our lives and the ways we go about our work, and also in the relationships that he puts around us at work. Listen to how John Stott talks about godly ambition. Once we are clear that God is king, then we long to see him crowned with glory and honor according to his true place. We become ambitious for the spread of this kingdom and righteousness everywhere. When this is genuinely our dominant ambition, then not only will all these things be yours as well, but there will be no harm in having secondary ambitions, since these will be subservient to our primary ambition and not in competition with it. Indeed, it is then that secondary ambitions become healthy. Christians should be eager to develop their gifts, widen their opportunities, extend their influence, and be given promotion in their work, not now to boost their own ego or build their own empire, but rather through everything they do to bring glory to God. It's when our earthly ambitions take precedence over kingdom ambition that they become a hindrance like Maddie's backpack, right? And keep us back from actually making progress for what will last. There's a humility in the language of this passage in Philippians that I want to make sure and take note of. This clarity that there's much more for even a bastion of the faith like Paul to learn. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, he's saying. He's not an expert. It is our firm belief here at Current that we don't graduate from the gospel. That yes, we all need that moment when we step across into faith, claiming that Jesus has bridged the chasm for us into eternity. From there, we daily return to our need for this grace, and it helps propel our spiritual journey forward. Listen to the way Pastor Tim Keller puts it in his book about faith and work, Every Good Endeavor. Becoming a Christian is a lot like moving to a new country, only it is more profound because it gives us a new perspective on every culture, every worldview, and every field of work. In the long run, the gospel helps us see everything in a new light. But it takes time to grasp and incorporate this new information into how we live and pursue our vocations. And we can be sure that this ultimate learning experience will never truly end. We are told the angels themselves never tire of looking into the gospel to see new wonders. We don't graduate from the gospel. I think this helps us understand why we struggle to keep our eyes on eternity. Why our achievements don't every day yet feel like garbage compared to the joy and righteousness we have in Christ. But there's hope because we learn that it takes determination to press on toward that heavenly worldview, to grow in our understanding of the gospel and how it applies to all aspects of our lives. Let's harness our ambition together to that end as a community. One last point before we wrap things up. In our context here in Silicon Valley, I believe another significant barrier to our keeping our eyes on the eternity horizon is what underlies the premium on achievement and this ambitious culture. That is the self-reliance that achievement encourages. What can happen to our soul when achievement is had, when we've arrived, when people applaud? There's an encouragement in this passage that when our ultimate confidence is not placed in the flesh, 
and the things that we can see, we will gain Christ and be found in him. That's a freeing concept, and it runs entirely antithetical to the idea of putting all of our trust in our own talents and abilities. Just as last week, David encouraged us that maybe, just maybe, we need to start by assuming we struggle with the dangers of money. I also want to propose today that we here in this room probably struggle with a self-reliance that waters down our faith, makes us less dependent on Jesus than he desires, and chains us from the freedom that we could have in keeping our eyes on what really matters and lasts for eternity. By way of illustration, let's take a quick side tour back to the Old Testament to the moment in Deuteronomy 9 when the Israelites are finally, after 40 years in the desert and a ridiculous number of missteps and refusals to follow God later, getting ready to enter the promised land. They've arrived, right? The book of Deuteronomy is the epic last sermon that Moses, their leader appointed by God, preaches before he climbs a mountain and dies. It's his literal last recorded words, ones of wisdom and born from a life of faithfulness, Interestingly, it follows the chapter where he warns them about the moral dangers of becoming wealthy, which is what David talked about in our Life Goals series last week. I want to draw your attention to chapter 9, verse 4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, so basically after he's allowed you to enter the promised land, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No. Down to verse 6, he says it again. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. What warning is he repeating to us over and over here? What repeating, what he's saying, do not rest on self-reliance, believing that you've made it here by your merit, by your obedience, by your hard work or faithfulness. You are a stiff-necked people. Another translation says, stubborn as mules, basically not willing to follow God's lead and trust him with our story, because that is our natural state, resistant to God's way for us, resistant to recognizing his role in our lives, in the places he puts us, in the roles he puts us in, in our work. Are we a stiff-necked people? I think so. I know I am. So what do we do with this, right? How do we frame achievements or moments when we've arrived? Let's try a word replacement exercise together. After the Lord your God has blank, fill in the blank, given you the job or promotion you've been longing for, provided your first home in the arguably the most uh, expensive real estate market in America, brought your kid through something really excruciatingly hard, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here because of my talents, hard work, parenting skills, swag, whatever you were tempted to put in that uh, bucket, right? What resonates for you here? The gospel reframes our heart posture when we've arrived. When achievement is had, it helps us remember that we're not our own, we're bought at a price, that we're broken people, that our stories are being written by God, and our jobs, our resources, our kids are all for us to steward in this life for the sake of eternity. I love how the Westminster Catechism puts it, basically an old-school way of memorizing biblical truths. Catechism number one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, to be believers who boast in Christ Jesus, or as the message translation puts it so beautifully, fills the air with Christ's praise as we do our work. What if, when we arrive, because let's be real, this room is full of gifted people who will arrive. You're 
gifted in your workplace, in the world, and God's delighted in that. Again, achievements in themselves are not bad, right? It's whether you approach it with a gospel worldview, ordered behind kingdom ambition. In some way or another, we here will all experience new goals, new achievements. It's a part of the journey, our careers, our personal lives, our relationships, as parents watching our kids start to achieve things themselves. What if when arrival points come, we make it a habit to fill the air with Christ's praise, to program it into ourselves as part of our kingdom ambition to grow in giving God glory whenever we arrive. It's funny, as a child of immigrants, I have distinct memories of learning to do American things. I remember going to Aaron Jensen's house uh, for dinner and staying after a play date for dinner for the first time. She lived in my neighborhood. I was probably five or six years old, really small. And I remember her mom putting dinner on the table and being really confused because there was nothing in the middle of the table and all of my food was already on my plate. I was like, yeah, just really confused. Like, why would you not eat family style, right? The same, the same went with, with manners, right? The same goes with manners through no fault of theirs. My amazing, loving English as a second language parents um, didn't really program please and thank you and sorry into our vocabulary from the time we were toddlers. I didn't even learn to speak English until I went to school. I mean, short of like a couple of words from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. So I have these fuzzy <laughs> memories as a kid, like feeling like social interactions, like there was something I was supposed to say, but like not really sure what it was. And I actually consciously remember teaching myself to say, bless you when somebody sneezed. I was um, on the bus. I remember being on the bus. So I was probably in elementary school. And I remember telling myself, like coaching myself, okay, when so-and-so sneezes again, say, bless you. And it sounds really ridiculous, right? But I had to teach myself these things, right? I had to program it into myself. I think in the same way we can teach ourselves to give God glory, right? When someone is talking to us about our achievements, about our credentials, about anything we have that we might be tempted to put our identity in or to boast in, what else could we say that would fill the air with Christ's praise? We can take a clue from professional athletes who follow Jesus and literally point up when they score, right? Um, what does that look like for us in our context? With friends at Current, it might be a bit easier, like, thank you, praise God, or God is good. At work, it's probably a little more subtle. One I really like to use is, thank you, I'm so grateful for this answer to prayer, right? Like, alluding to the fact that I pray, and I'm dependent on Jesus. Um, or you could straight up uh, pull a Steph Curry the other night um, after his amazing second half in his interview saying, I thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the opportunity, right? The point is you're going to have to figure out based on your own context. Find your own words. I think if we ask for it, I believe the Holy Spirit will provide the words to give God glory. It doesn't take much to point to Jesus, and ultimately it's our heart posture that he cares about. But maybe the habits and informal language that we learn can help us in the direction we want our hearts to go. Let's ask the Lord to grow in us this desire to live for God's kingdom first together. Do we see the unlock? Just as we are stewards of resources here in the Silicon Valley, um, we are also stewards of the talents we're given, of the positions and the relationships that we're placed in. The gospel reframes our perspective on achievement, of ambition, on arrival, and breaks down barriers to help us live for God's kingdom first. Because ultimately, none of us are truly going to arrive we are but a breath, and it's all going to pass away. The only arrival that will matter in the end when we're lying on our deathbed is that eternity horizon we're struggling to keep our eyes on every day.
verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, but you have that nagging in your stomach that this might be true, that there might be more to life than this, I want to invite you today to step into that, to step across the line into faith and say, yes, Jesus, I want an eternity to keep my eyes on. If this is you, will you put something on your connection card? I failed to bring one up. A connection card to let us know. Uh, we would love to pray with you, uh, to equip you, um, to help you figure out next steps. For those of us who are here and follow Jesus, if there's something in that fill-in-the-blank that is resonating for you today, that you realize the Lord is pulling out of you or working over in you, maybe it's something in your life that you've been really self-reliant in and you want to trust him better with. Will you put something in your prayer section on the card also so we can pray with you? Let's acknowledge to the Lord together that we don't get it all right, that we need him and we need his help to keep our eyes on what's last. Let, let us together be a community that tries our best together to live for God's kingdom first. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are the author and perfecter of our faith, of our stories in the beginning and the end. Lord, we trust you with our lives. Thank you that you know us so well, better than we know ourselves. We desire to live a life that fills the air with your praise, and we desire to be a community that lives with your kingdom first. Would you show us how? We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>